1 Peter 4, uh, verse 7 and 8 is where we will be. If you could turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 8. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to uh, ask God's blessing upon our time, so let's pray and we'll begin. Dearly Father, thank you that it is by your Son's blood that we are redeemed, and that on the cross, God's wrath was completely satisfied. The words thank you seem so insufficient to the, the debt of gratitude that we owe, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. As we look at this text today and we see how Peter reminds us of that we are living in the last times and the last days, help us to have a proper understanding of how we are to live. Thank you that these words that were written literally thousands of years ago remind us even today how to live faithfully. As we see the world around us continually to pursue after worthless things, help us to know how we are to live and live accordingly. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, all this last week, I've been mulling over, obviously, this text and also uh, what happened at the start of what happened yesterday, where uh, I would not argue, where argue mo- most of us went out to the woods and did more waiting than we did hunting, waiting to fire our guns hopefully only once, and then be done for the, you know, to get out of the cold and be done the suffering that is there. And as I was sitting there waiting, because the right deer did not come by, uh, the ones I didn't want were coming by, and I was still waiting, and the one that is, Lord willing, that will get this, that one shot that I only have to shoot is still out there, I just haven't met it yet. I was thinking of all the waiting, all of the being ready, all of the things that we need when it comes to patience, and all of the things that you're sitting out there, you know, you're in the cold and you're trying to go three more minutes, will that make a big difference, and all of the things that are going through, I started thinking of all of the times and all the phrases that uh, I handled as a parent growing up, and even the things I've heard here. Uh, most of you, if you've had kids, you've heard as you're driving down the road, are we there yet? Right? And you turn around and say, we're almost there, just a couple of minutes. And then the response is, well, how many is a couple of minutes? And then you give them some fictitious four minutes from now. And the ones who understand their 60 seconds in four minutes start counting. And they count all the way there. And you're like, well, we're not there yet. And you go, try it four more times. And, you know, the, the issue arises. Uh, if you've had the privilege of working with uh, maple syrup and you ask, is it ready yet? Usually the answer will go, well, we're closer than we were several minutes ago. Um, if you've been on any men's retreat and you're waiting for french fries to be done, usually you'll hear they'll be ready in two minutes. And who knows how long those two minutes will be. If you've been at CBC and you've heard the pastor say in closing, that usually means you at least have ten minutes left in the sermon. We're not even close to closing out. And if you've been driving down the road with our family and you see that rest stop that you need to get gas and it goes like this. Hey guys, we're stopping to get gas. Everyone get your shoes and jackets on. Be ready when we get there and you pull in and there's always someone who goes, well, I didn't think it was going to come this quickly when they were looking for all the paraphernalia they need to get in to go to the bathroom. All that being said, Peter here in 1 Peter 4, 7, and 8, says a phrase that we need to spend some time thinking about. So let's look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The title of the sermon we're talking about, Last Day Living. Because Peter here tells us in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And the point, point number one, is obviously the last days are at hand, but I threw on the point there, it's been a while, all right? Because Peter wrote this in the 60s, not 1960s, in literally 64 A.D., he wrote this, and if you just do a little math, well, uh, it's been a couple of years since him, him writing this, and so if he's saying the end of all things is at hand, what in the world is he talking about? Because obviously it doesn't seem that they are. So in order to understand this, though, we need to take a little walk through biblical time and look at the way the Bible describes history. The Bible breaks down history into two time periods. We have this age, and then we have the age to come. All right, so you have this age, and you have then the age to come. And we're going to look at several passages of Scripture here and see Jesus speaking of this, and even Paul picking it up as well. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, and we're going to see how Jesus is going to lump in all of history into two periods, time periods. Matthew 12, 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We're not going to spend time breaking down what is talking about in the first part there, but in the last part, notice you have this age and you have the age to come. Flipping a couple pages over to Luke, Luke chapter 20, where when there's a question about marriage being asked, Jesus here is going to answer the same thing as well, seeing these two time periods. Luke 20, 34 through 35. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So you see the sons of this age and you see of that age. And so you may say it's not exactly right. We have this age and the age to come, so it's a this and a that age there as well. Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul here picks up the same concept. In Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, speaking of Jesus Christ, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So you're seeing how you have this breakdown of two ages. Now, if, you're, if you were able to pick up a bulletin, and in the bulletin there is a, if you want to try to put this together, two lines and a timeline there, you're going to see this age and then you see the cross. And if you were to almost kind of draw a line straight up after the cross to that dotted line, you're going to see when Jesus came, he put basically the end of this age, and he started telling us that we are now in the age to come, but we are not completely in the age to come yet. That's why you have those dotted lines, where you will see in the Bible terms the already, but not yet. And so what we see here is when Jesus comes in the resurrection. Remember, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected. We're getting a foretaste of what the kingdom living will be all about. 
Remember, big picture here, the goal and the pursuit is to get back to garden living with Christ. And we see the same garden pictures and all of that garden stuff in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this battle is, will we ever get back to be with God? And the answer is yes, one day that will come. And we're starting to see mankind dwelling with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And so we have God dwelling with us, but not completely yet. You're getting a foretaste of what is to come, but we do not have what has come yet. The kingdom has not been fully revealed. We see this played out as well, and people will say things like this. To give you an example, they will call it the dawn of the day that is yet to come. So at, at dawn, if you've got a chance to ever be out there, at dawn the sun is not up yet, but the sun and the light rays are shining, and we're starting to see a foretaste of what the world will be like living in the kingdom of God, but yet it has not completely come here yet. Uh, Peter is dealing with this because Peter said in first, uh, chapter 4 here, the end of things is at hand, and then by his second epistle, you can see there's some people that are dealing with this issue of, Peter, you said the time at hand had come. Turn to uh, 2 Peter 3 and verse 3, where Peter is talking about that the day of the Lord will come. And in verse 3 he says, of chapter 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day of scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and here's what the scoffers will scoff at you, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. In chapter of 2 Peter 3, 3 here, as he's in verse 4, they're saying these scoffers are going to come. You said it was the end times here, but people have been coming and going and dying and nothing seems to change. And Peter answers that in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now, I want to be very careful when I describe this. Peter has not just given us the key to understand Jesus' timeline. As in, 24 hours on earth here is exactly 1,000 years in Jesus' time. And so now all of a sudden we got some key that now is going to unlock the door to know exactly when Jesus is going to come back. And I've seen this, this verse abused in that way as if Peter is now saying 24 hours in earth time is exactly 1,000 years in heaven time. And so now we're going to build a whole theory off of that. What Peter is saying in here is your time way of thinking is not the same as the all ever existing eternal God. To him, it is but a moment. To you, it is a long time and vice versa. And so what we have here, if you would even argue it, if you're taking Peter here, he's basically saying it's been two days since Jesus said that, if you want to say it in Jesus' term period. All right? So like when the end of time is at hand, when you're also dealing with an eternal God, you're dealing with a timeless God that is saying he can say things, the end of things is at hand, and it be true. So what we have here is the living in the already but not yet in verse 7 of 1 Peter 4. We're getting a small taste and glimpse of what's happening. So the question then is how should we be living understanding that the last days are at hand? How do you live with that in mind? So with that being said, I want to flip back to Luke. Because remember, when Luke is writing, he's writing the things that Peter sat and listened to Jesus say. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Please turn there because I really want you to see this in this full context. Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action. Hopefully, I'm sure, because you guys every day, I know you have read 1 Peter hundreds of times, right? And you have it so memorized that you can't, you know, that just you bleed 1 Peter. But 1 Peter 1, 13 Remember that? We've talked about it so many times that you, your Bible should open there. What does 1 Peter 1.13 remind us? Be ready for action. Gird up your loins. What do we see here? Literally, it's the same line. Get your mind in this way of thinking. Get ready. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once when he has comes and knocks. Blessed are those whose servants, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have left his house uh, to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he is telling them to go study your maps of the end times. No, it's be ready. Be ready. When we think of this idea of being ready, notice how Luke reminds us of being ready. When you hear that the end is at at hand, be ready. And the example is a servant getting the house ready. So as soon as the master knocks, what can he do? Open the door because the house is ready. If a servant is not ready, as soon as the master knocks, what do you have? You have very similar things that happen when if Allison has been away from our home for a while and it's just me and the kids. All right? If you've ever had experience like that and you know mom's coming home today. All right? We're all trying to make sure we're ready. All right? We all know the things that need to be ready because mom's coming. All right, what needs to be ready? Where are the areas? And so you're shoving and washing and scrambling all over the place to be ready because you don't want, we don't know exactly when she's coming, so we want to be ready. Instead, we, and so we don't see the car pull in and everybody go, uh, I'm not ready, right? You've seen this in, in your own homes when all of a sudden company shows up unexpected and now there's, everything's getting thrown all, all sorts of places because you weren't ready. And so what Peter is reminding us, as well as Jesus was reminding us, is when the end of time is at hand, be ready. So the mark of a believer that is watching for the Lord's return is readiness. A life that is ready for God to return at any moment. A life that is living itself in a way that is God-honoring and ready. So what we see is readiness is the key, not the ability to explain what will happen when Jesus returns. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that studying end times is no profit. I want to be clear on that. But notice what Jesus and Peter are focused on. More than the knowing what's going to happen, it's the readiness of the believer of what will happen. Then what will happen? The readiness. Are the believers ready? And I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Um, Many years ago, we were reading a story uh, for our kids at, uh, for bedtime, and it was just whatever the next story was we were reading, and we read a short a little devotional story for them, and it was, it was a, the story was put, a, 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 again, it was put in a uh, setting where 
This was a very rural farm life setting. And in this farm life setting, this was a time when the boys would hang out in the marketplace. And if you were a farmer coming into town and you needed help for the day, you would snag a kid or you would snag a kid for the whole summer and have him work on your farm and things like that. And so these boys are hanging there and this farmer comes in as the story goes on and he starts looking at which boy he's going to snag, which boy he's going to bring uh, home with him for the summer. He looks at some of these kids and one kid goes, I can lift two hay bales. I'm really strong. Another one was saying, you know, I can work really long hours. I've got a strong back. And he gets to this one kid and he goes, well, what, what can you do? And this kid said, well, I can sleep on stormy nights. And all of a sudden, the farmer looks at him like, I don't even know if that's a skill or not. And he goes, does his, his work for that um, day in town. And on the way back, these kids are still there. And he looks at the kid that goes, you can sleep on stormy nights. All right, listen, come on, I'll bring you home. I just, he just couldn't get it out of his mind. Well, the kid's working at the farm for a while. And, uh, you know, just would have it when they don't have weather maps and all of the other things like that. Uh, they're working on the farm, the boy is asleep one night and all of a sudden a freak storm comes up, you know, like they do in the summer, and it is just raining like crazy and the wind is howling. The farmer wakes up to a bolt of lightning, hops up, he runs up to get his help, and he shakes him, he says, get up! And the kid is sound asleep. He yells at him, get up, throws off the covers, get up, get up! And the kid doesn't move at all. And he mutters under his breath what help this kid is. The farmer runs outside, he goes to the gate, uh, that was there on the barn door, and he goes to make sure that it was latched, and it was latched securely. He goes, good, that's done. He runs over to the spot where the, the cow gate was for the cows that would come in and out just to make sure it wouldn't blow open, and that was securely latched. He takes another a corner, and he goes over, and he looks at the tarp that was for the hay that was to be down, and that was bolted down, and all of a sudden it struck him. The reason why the kid can sleep on stormy nights is because the kid had done his work right the first time, so when it was a stormy night, he could sleep through. This is what, that mentality is what God has called us to here in this world. He has not called us to, to become meteorologists and sit there and go, I think a storm's coming tonight, I better get ready. He says, you better get ready because you do not know when the storm is coming. You live your life ready. And what has happened is, and sadly in our day and age, we can get so caught up with reading the newspaper and then looking at the Bible instead of reading the Bible, then looking at the newspaper. And what does the Bible tell us? Get ready. All the newspaper says is, yeah, you probably should. But the Bible tells us, get ready. Be ready for the Lord's return is at any moment. And notice how it even goes more. What does Peter say here in verse 7? The end of things are at hand, therefore what? Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Point number two, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Notice this way Peter puts it. Therefore, meaning in light of what was said, that the end of things is at hand, therefore, and that, that word be there is a command. Here's the command. Self-controlled and sober-mindedness is the command that God has given. If God has to give us a command, one of the natural things that we need to make sure as we read the Bible, whenever there's a command in Scripture, you must pause and say, why is there a command here? Because the answer to why there's a command there is because your natural reaction is going to do the opposite. And so God's Word commands us. All right, Because when I'm angry at someone, the sin nature, if I allow it to build enough, is going to want me to kill them. And so God says, do not kill. All right, Because guess what you want to do? Kill, and you can just fill in all the other ones because the sinful nature is going to want you to do this. And so commands are given because it shows us what we are to do instead of 
The expression we live in our world today is follow your heart. The Bible does not call us to follow our heart because Jeremiah reminds us the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. So when the end is at hand, we are to be self-controlled. We think of the idea of self-controlled and sober-mindedness. That is the exact opposite of what we studied a couple of passages before that of remember the Gentiles and how they lived, doing everything without restraint, no holds to the Gentile world, just no restraints, there's no limits to anything. And now we said, as you Christians, as you are living in the last days, here's what you are to be known as. Not a group of people that are following every passion and desire. You are a group of people who are what? Self-controlled and sober-minded. Sober-minded means thinking properly. It's the idea to curb one's passions. When we think properly and we bring one's passions under control, we will then be able to make wise decisions. Because if we're not careful, and I have watched this happen in my lifetime as well as in the times past, you pick up literature that starts talking about the end times, and before you know it, you get really anxious, you get really nervous. I mean, I could give you article after article after article that would cause you to go home and be scared to absolute death about how evil the world is. But what are we supposed to be? Ready. And you go into the next one, self-control. Become watchful under control. So when we see that the end is coming, our response is to not gather as much dried rice and beans as we possibly can. Make sure we have enough ammo so that when everything happens... We're living our lives eating our dried rice and beans and shooting our neighbors as they come over starving to death. All right? That's not what the text says. Yet I wonder when you have some of these prepping, what are you prepping for? You should be prepping for the world to come, not living here, shooting your neighbor as they starve to death. And you say, we're ready. That's a whole other topic for another day. What does sober-mindedness and self-control remind us of? It should remind us of this. As we are living in the last days, we are going to need sober-mindedness and self-control. Turn to Matthew 24 and listen to the way Jesus describes in Matthew 24, living in the last days are going to be. Matthew 24, verse 3, as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he came to the disciples privately saying, tell us, when these things will be, the disciples came to him and said, tell us when these things will be. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. So notice this, the deception is going to be great because what are they going to lead? Many astray. That is why we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded and need to be ready because you're going to be tempted to be led astray. And he continues on. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars that are going to cause you to panic. And so what does Jesus say? See that you are not alarmed. Like, don't panic when you see these things happening. Be sober-minded, self-controlled. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, leading many astray. And because of lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end 
will come. What we see here, we see that false teachers will arise. We see that the deception will be great. We see that there will be panic in the streets. And the Christian is not to get just run into that panic, run into that worry. The Christian is to be sober-minded, thinking properly, and self-controlled. Now, we are living in a day and age where literally Orwell's books are coming true. We are living in, if you don't know what that is, you need to read it because, or just watch the news, you'll see it in live play out. Where when the world looks at, at, at what we should be doing, biblically speaking, what they're going to do in an Orwellian, literally, government law that is, should be or maybe be getting passed here soon, instead of saying what it is, we're trying to destroy marriage and make it what marriage is not supposed to be, what you do is you pass a law that says the Respective Marriage Act, which literally destroys marriage, and everybody votes for it because if you make it sound like something it's not, people will vote for it because who's going to go against the Respective Marriage Act where all it's doing is literally destroying the sanctity of marriage. Albert Moeller, in his briefing this week, talking about that, he says, when the entire world is losing its mind, that is the very moment when the church must keep its mind. But what happens is if we're not careful, we can get caught up with that, and then we're running around with a chicken with our head cut off, and what does Peter tell these people? Be sober-minded, be self-controlled. This should not cause you to panic. Notice back in 1.13, where Peter is reminding these people, therefore prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded. Literally the same word that's being used. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. And how are you sober-minded? How do you become sober-minded? The answer is, set your hope fully in the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You set your hope in Christ and Christ alone because if you're not sober-minded self-control, you will look at the world around you and see no hope. You will see hopelessness everywhere, but we are to remind ourselves that we are to hope in the unmovable rock of Jesus Christ. This is why a song that was penned in the 1800s speaks directly even into today, where the writer says that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And it ends with, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Notice the readiness in that verse. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now, Peter goes on in this verse, At the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded. And if we were sitting here, and let's say Peter was lecturing on this, and he would say, all right, listen, the end is at times are at hand. I want you to be sober-minded. I want you to be self-controlled for... Some may raise their hand and go, for witnessing. Some may say, for boldness. Some may say, for this. I wonder how long it would take until someone says, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayer. All right, Because what does Peter say here? It's interesting, you go, what does prayer have to do with this? I would argue, when we are thinking properly, we know there's no other place to go but to God in prayer. Isn't that what the song we just quoted? When we are thinking earthly, where do we go? We look all around, right? You go buy that year supply of 
dried rice and beans, and you think that you have your faith and trust in that. Remember the Paul Harvey quote that the way to destroy America, the way to destroy a society is for people to pray, Our Father with art, which art in Washington. Some of us run and think as long as we have the right people at the right places there, everything is going to solve. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us when the, the end of all things is at hand, be sober-minded, self-control, and pray. When we think about prayer, we understand that prayer is very important. When we go to the Lord in prayer, and I think about this, it happens in my own life. Uh, one of the things when I was a kid that used to just grate upon me, and I know it was, it was this, the Holy Spirit's pushing upon me, I would lose something, and, my par- and I'd be looking for it all the time, and my parents, my dad or my mom would say, Tim, have you prayed about it? And I'd go, no, because I'm still looking for it. And it was almost as if the irony and the, um, the irony of it all, when I would stop and pray, the Lord would bring to my mind the last place that it was, and I would find it. And you know what I'd do? Uh, I don't, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to attribute that to prayer. Uh, you know, in my mind, I would fight that, right? And all of a sudden, you're realizing, you're going, wait a minute here. Prayer, what prayer does is it chisels away the idols of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. When you go to the Lord in prayer, what you are literally saying is, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And that's one of the prayer is obviously communication before God. But one of the reasons why we go to prayer, one of the things that someone should be when they understand that the end is at hand, you are to see the deception all around us. You are to see all of the things, if you want to call it, as we've used the phrase, going to hell in a handbasket. When you see all of those things happening, your response is prayer. Not our response is, let's check the newspaper to make sure I know who Gog and Magog are, or any of the other things like that. Your response is, am I ready? Am I living a life that when the door, the knock comes, the door is ready to be swung open? Or am I living a life that is prayer completely relying on God? Or am I living a life that has myself at the center? Because we need to pray. How many times did Jesus even say to his disciples? And I don't know if Peter is mulling this through here, because remember one of the last things Jesus told Peter to do on the night in the garden was what? Watch and pray. And what did Peter do? He slept. All right? And as we see these things played out, and remember in Peter's temptation, I'm sure without a doubt, as Peter's writing this through the through. Uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit through the inspiration of it. Things like this are coming back to his mind. I, even, I don't know how as Peter could even write the word prayer. The, what didn't come to his mind. Remember when Satan said, I want Peter. Satan has asked for you. And what did Jesus said? I prayed for you. And the power of the prayer that is in there where most of us, what do we like to do? We don't go to the Lord in prayer. But Peter in another way is saying, watch Pray so you don't fall into temptation. Because in the end, temptation is going to be everywhere. Verse 8, so then Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter here, in, in closing, again, that gives me a couple more minutes. Peter here says, Above all, love one another and still ringing in the ears of the people that are reading this. 
is what just took place when we talked about a week ago. You have the mocking and the maligning that the Gentiles are doing because you used to hang out with them, and now you don't. You used to do the same things they do, and now you don't, and so they make fun of you, they mock you. And now all of a sudden, we come through our weeks of getting mocked and maligned, and we come here to a gathering where we are to be, if you want to say it in a way, (sighs) finally with like-minded people. And Peter says, if you want to get through this time, here's what you need to do. Love one another. Peter here gives us one of the keys of living in the end times. Notice he says again, love one another. And the reason, the sense there, the reason why we're to love one another earnestly, you can feel the desire there, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now I want to be clear what is not saying. This is not giving us a license to sin. So one of you comes in and you're living a life of sin and someone says, hey, we need to say something to them. And the leadership goes, no, 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 we just love. And you're like, no, you love them enough to what? Point out the deception and the error. Because what do we know in the last times? There's going to be what? Deception and error. And so people are going to come in and you're going to hear they are being deceived. They are starting to buy the lie. And if you love them enough, your love for them will cause you to point it out to them, but pointing it out in a way that is loving. Not pointing it out in the way of, oh, can you believe so-and-so got swept away by temptation? And the answer is yes, the Bible tells us it's going to happen. What do we need to do? We need to love them enough to go after them. That I love you enough that I'm going to pursue after you when you are going the wrong way. It's the mindset that we've been called to. So, what do we need to know about the end times that's going to make loving someone very important? Okay, let's, let's walk through this. The stress of the end times is going to be great. We will see deception everywhere, right? That's what Matthew tells us. Jesus tells us in Matthew there. You're going to see things that you're going to be taught, things that are not true. You're going to be asked to do things that are not God-honoring. This is going to be hard. If you're working in any environment right now in the United States, the whole plus movement is coming at us, and there's what are we going to do about it? It is going to be hard. We are going to need one another. We're going to need to encourage one another because we do not know what we're going to face, but God does. We don't know all the particulars of all that's coming down, but we know what's going to help us through this is a proper way of thinking, self-controlled, sober-minded, and the love for one another. Because the conflict at work, the pressures that we are going through at work are going to spill over into the home, and guess where they're going to spill? From the home to the church. And the struggles are going to be real. People are going to be confused or tempted to follow false teachers. When we love each other, it will be a patient, kind, no keeper of wrongs, bearing all things love. Because some of you are already being tempted. Some of you are already starting to fall away, but if we love one another, we will encourage one another together, not going, I can't believe you are starting to fall away. What is wrong with you? What do we know that's going to happen? It is going to be an incredibly deceiving time period. That is why some of us, by God's grace, will be thinking soberly or to help those who are not thinking soberly, to encourage one another, to love one another, to gather with one another. That is why we need to be there. This is a two-way street. Because remember, we are at war with a way of thinking, not people. And when that way of thinking is trying to draw, someone, draw them away, 
We remember that they are not the enemy, it's their way of thinking is the enemy, and we need to call out to them in a sober-minded, self-controlled way, look to the cross, look to Christ, because all around you, you are running to, instead of running to Him and Him alone. This can only be done when we realize that the church is a battleship, not a cruise liner. Because when you're on a cruise liner, you get upset when the little mints are not in the cup after your meal. But when you're on a battleship, you realize whether there's a mint there or not, that is not the point of it. We are at war with this world. And then I'm not looking at the person saying, why did the maid not clean my room? I'm looking at the person going, hey, look, get whatever you can and let's fire that way. Like, I don't care if you, you know, you smell funky today. Or grab your gun and let's start shooting because the enemy is real and they are coming at us. And this is where where love starts to cover these things, because we need one another. When we realize the church again is to be a spot where we take our burdens, our struggles, and we bring them before the Lord and each other, and as we do this together, we will start to see that God has called us to live in community. Love one another earnestly, but here's what happens. And here's what will happen. When the pressures come of living in the end times and the last days, here's how the pressures will come. Kids will be encouraged to follow entertainment instead of the things of God. Kids will be encouraged to be disobedient to their parents, and parents will struggle. Marriages will struggle. If you do not have problems in your marriage, just give it a day, and you will have issues. But what do we like to do? None of us have any problems, right? We all put on our Sunday morning smile, right? And we all go, we're good to go. Let's all go to church and act like there's nothing going wrong. Is that not what Satan wants? Satan wants nothing more to have you isolated and pushed off into the corner, and you're not going to do it. And all of a sudden, this togetherness that comes, that we're loving one another earnestly, this togetherness that God has called us to, which we'll see after we get done with Christmas, show hospitality to one another without grumbling because there's going to be some grumbling that's going to come and Peter's going to say, hey, let's learn how to be hospitable to one another because you need one another. Because in the last days, the deception is going to be so great that we're going to think that nobody else is going through the same problems I have. So what we're going to do is be quiet, struggle on your own, and wonder why we are not seeing the success and victory over these sins when God said, I have given you the Spirit and the church to guide you. But it is easy to isolate ourselves. Because we're going to have disagreements on things. We will come here into this room and gather together, And though the world is raging on the outside, there's going to be some times we have disagreements. Yet we're called to treat each other with kindness. And I'll give you an example. Like, really, we're going to have disagreements? Okay. Uh, My wife has made a covenant with God and with me that she's going to love me no matter what. But she still struggles with it. I mean, I know you're amazed that she would struggle with that, but she still struggles with it. All right, Do you see, even if in a marriage where people have both covenanted together in that, you're going to get into a body of believers where we have, in a way, covenanted the same concept to love one another? Do you see where the issues are going to arise? Because we will each wrestle through this living in the last days. The panic button is right there on all of our lives, right? It doesn't take long. I remember when I got done 
listening this week to the Defense of Marriage Act, and it wasn't just one or two senators that went with it. You had like 62 that voted in favor, and I just went like, where, where have we gone? Like, really? Like that, and then on top of it, too, one of the senators said, I'll vote for it as if you do not take out the um, tax, if you will guard religious organizations from their tax-exempt status if they don't follow with, and they said, nope. We're not going to put that in there as any safeguards for religious stuff. And you're just like, the, arrow, the, the target is just right on the church. It's only a matter of time until the trigger goes. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, I, I know. I, uh, and I'm working through this end time sermon and going like, be sober-minded, self-control, because right then I just wanted to go panic. <laughs> like, seriously, guys? Like, if there was ever a time to panic, like, this would be the time to panic, all right? I'll tell you when to panic, and the answer is now, all right? And, you know, in your mind, going through all of these things and sitting there going, all right, like, and I look at my daughter Catherine going, what world are you growing up in where the, where the wrong is going to be seen as normal, and my heart breaks, and then I'm like, didn't you just not read? Be self-controlled, sober-minded, and what? Pray. You know what I didn't do as I was listening to the briefing, talking about all these things? At the end, I didn't go, you know what? We need to pray. You know what I did? I sat down with Allison and I started talking to her about it. And I started looking down at all the names of the senators that voted for it and started thinking, I better call each one of them and say, even though I don't live in your state, I'm watching you, you know, and all these other things. But in, in my own heart, I was going to go, was I sober-minded, self-controlled, and just went to the Lord in prayer? Because if it's not this thing, it's, it's something else. If it's not going to be in this area, it's something else. When we really grasp that we are living in the end times, the song we're going to sing has been, a, it's been an interesting song in my own life as I've wrestled through some of this. The song we're going to sing literally says we're almost home so many times by the time you're done you'll go, I think I get it that we're almost home. All right? But the reason why I love the fact that it says it over and over and over again is because guess what most of us don't live like? We're almost home. We live like, oh, there's a whole lot to go. I'm not getting ready. I'm not doing all these other things. I'm not. And you can fill in the blank. Because the part says in it, so press on towards that shore because you're almost home. What, what in, that, in that phrase there, what in my mind I picture is a group of people loving one another, a group of people overlooking as I would call it, the petty differences that can so easily sweep in to our own lives. We overlook those silly things. Now, there are times, I want to be clear, love does cover a multitude of sin, but there are things that we need to deal with in a loving manner. That does not mean we're just blind to these things. So, when error comes in, we don't just go, oh, they just love them. All right? It's like, I'm just going to squeeze you to death. Well, no, that doesn't work. All right? We need to, in love, deal with these things. But what I see is an individual who is struggling in the church. It could be whether they're just the sin of this world is bombarding them. It could be discouragement or whatever. And what you see is people locking arms with them and saying, we are almost home. Look to Christ and helping them those last several stages on pointing to Him and Him alone. But the problem is, in order for that person in that analogy, they have to be willing to ask for help. But it's very easy to go, I don't need anybody, right? We got this. You know, the American self-reliance and self-sufficient these, these thing that you don't, have, you don't have problems, all right? All you are is just a really good liar that you don't have problems, all right? But what we are to do with these, we take them before the throne of God and have His healing salve, if you want to call it, and His Word heal us 
We don't take it to each other just for commiserate. We take it to each other so we can encourage each other on. Come on, on. You can do this through the grace that God has given us. This is why we gather together. This is why as we go through our weeks when we are struggling, we come together and we remind ourselves that we're almost home. So the courage of this song is to encourage us to love one another through those moments that are hard. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that allows us to love and to care for one another. So the answer, what did we learn today? I've used this in the past and I'll use it again. I know by God's word what was taught. Whether you learned it or not, time will tell. Because as the days get even greater, deception gets even more, we will see if we've learned what Peter has called us to be. Sober-minded, self-controlled, praying, and above all, loving one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you. By your grace and your grace alone that we stand. There are going to be so many things in this world that will come at us this next week. So many things in this world that would unravel us if our minds and our hearts were not under the control of your Holy Spirit and going before you in prayer. Help us now. Guide us. Give us the wisdom that can only come from you. Give us a discerning heart to know not just right and wrong, but those almost rights that are so easily tempting us that are wrong in the end. So, dearly Father, may we stand boldly on you and your word, because all other ground is sinking sand. In your name we pray. Amen.